My name is Jason, by the way, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Two Rivers. We're in a series uh, uh, working through uh, the letters to Timothy from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Uh, I had an opportunity to sit down with a friend this week, and he said to me, Hey, Swain, were you aware uh, before you decided to teach through 1 Timothy uh, how many hard passages are in 1 Timothy? And I said, I was aware, but I didn't choose to teach through 1 Timothy. My wife did. Not that she would teach through it, but I would teach through it. Um, And so we are going to get right into the deep end of the pool again today. Uh, I have in my notes, I don't have a funny intro or story, but off the cuff, last service, I told a quick joke, and it went pretty well for me. So I thought I would just give it a go in here and see how it goes for you. This this, this has nothing to do with the text. It's just, just, just have some fun. Anybody ever been to Hawaii before? Anyone? Hands in the room? Hands in the room? Hands in the room? If you haven't been, go. It's awesome. Paradise. Uh, In Hawaii, do you think people laugh out loud? Or is it just aloha? You guys didn't laugh as well as the first service. So, took you a while to get it. Right on. It's like that Goodyear joke from a few weeks ago. That took like five minutes for some people to get. All right. With that, we are going to start today by talking about the words orthodoxy and heresy. So deep into the pool. So nice little pastoral transition, right? From a silly joke to orthodoxy and heresy, because this is going to be part of what we're engaging in in our text today. The word orthodoxy itself comes uh, from the Greek word orthodoxia. And if you separate that word, it just simply means uh, right belief. Uh, um, Another way to understand orthodoxy is essential belief or a core Christian doctrine, orthodoxy. Uh, Right belief as opposed to heresy, which comes from oh, that Greek word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, uh, which the literal translation of that is a chosen opinion. Uh, where, we get, where we get the word heresy from, uh, church history grabbed onto this word uh, from Peter's letter, 2 Peter 2.1. You don't need to turn there, but let me read this verse to you. It's 2 Peter 2.1. Peter says this, there were... Uh, also false prophets among the people, just as there were also false teachers among you. And they secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them or who redeemed them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And so the early church uh, adopted the meaning or the term heresy based on this verse, 2 Peter 2.1, and it came to mean basically this, a deliberate denial of orthodoxy, a deliberate denial of truth as revealed in Scripture, and an embrace of uh, error. Like you've heard the phrase heretic before, right? That comes from the word heresy. Um, let's talk about church history for just a second. So, um, if, if true Christianity was, was going to be preserved from false teachers, false teaching, um, then a, a rule of faith or a standard of faith or an orthodoxy needed to be presented to people so that they would understand truth from error. 
And um, these essentials of the faith uh, became known as creeds. Uh, anybody grow up in a more traditional a church that would uh, recite, let's say, the Apostles' Creed? I grew up in a Methodist, so we, re- we literally would recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday at the little church that I grew up in. Uh, creeds uh, comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And so they're, they're I believe statements. That's what a creed is. Uh, typically, they're short declarations of faith formed, this is important, to combat doctrinal error or heresy that was seeping into the church. Um, three kind of probably the most famous three church history creeds. One is the Apostles' Creed. That's the earliest one, circa 200 A.D., 250 A.D. It's the earliest of kind of the main creeds that's still used in Christianity today. I guarantee you that Gladeville Methodist Church recited the Apostles' Creed today while my mom was playing the organ. promise you. Um, The name derives from the legend... We don't know if this is true or not, but the legend that the 12 apostles of Christ contributed to that particular creed. Um, Probably the most common creed used in Christianity today is the Nicene Creed. Uh, And that was um, adopted in, uh, well, they they got together around 325 AD. And then I think the church kind of established itself as uh, kind of the rule of faith in 381. And at the time, in the 300s AD, the church was really struggling, which... Uh, became known as the Arian heresy. And basically what that just means is they, there was a, a heretical teaching that was denying that Christ was truly God from the beginning. Instead, that Jesus was a created being. And so under that heresy, the church came together in Nicaea and created the Nicene Creed, which uh, promoted the truth that Jesus uh, was has been God, is God, was always God, all the way back to the creation. And he is the Lord of glory. So Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. And then the third one I would just mention is the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, This is in 451. Uh, Council meets to resolve uh, the issue of the natures of Christ. Uh, The creed states that while Christ had two natures, fully God, fully human, he was in one person. So one person Two natures. That's what that particular creed uh, was uh, fighting for the truth of. Um, so the reason why I'm giving you this at the beginning, for two reasons. One, I think it's important for us just to know a little bit more about our church history. Uh, the shoulders, the witnesses that we stand on, that uh, people who contended for the faith. Uh, and so I just think these are important things to learn. If you've never learned about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, I would encourage you to spend some time looking into those, reading those, uh, pondering those. Uh, It's not scripture. It's not scripture, but it is a statement's declaration of the truth of our faith to combat error. And secondly, is because Paul offers in our text today a famous creedal statement of Christology. Uh, It's 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 today. And this creedal statement or this hymn, this Christology hymn is uh, verse 16 in chapter 3. And this verse, this creed is a climax 
to the, the entire first letter to Timothy. Um, a commentator on 1 Timothy 3.16 said, This hymn or this creed is a magnificent conclusion to chapters 1 to 3. If you've been with us in the series, you know that over the last um, few weeks as we've been engaging in chapters 2 and chapters 3 has been centered almost entirely on character or moral integrity or the alignment of our lives aligning with what we say we believe. And that all comes together uh, in this creedal statement, in this hymn, because the hymn shows that doctrine or orthodoxy lies at the heart of it all. Um, so uh, I'm going to read the passage in just a minute. But before we get there, this is kind of the update on the outline that we've been working through since we started. Uh, we're going to be on point D today, the Christological Climax. Uh, and then we're going to get into specifics to Timothy's assignment in chapter 4, first five verses, and then we'll finish chapter 4 uh, next week. So uh, let me leave that outline up for you. And then if you will just read along with me, I'm going to be reading uh, from the NIV. Uh, chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, 14 uh, through verse 5 of chapter 4. Paul says in 14, to Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon. This is a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith. Uh, they are separated uh, and he is writing this letter and he wants to come to Timothy back to Ephesus soon. We see in Acts 20, uh, Paul leaves Ephesus and the elders and there's, there's, they're, they're weeping as, as their pastor, their apostle leaves. And so he's hoping to come back. And so he's telling Timothy, I'm wanting to come back to you soon, but I'm writing you these instructions now so that if I am delayed in coming, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Again, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3. That's what we've been talking about over the last weeks. God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Verse 16, climax verse. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then we get this creedal hymn or statement. God appeared in a body or God appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. Chapter four, the spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is, this is the word of God for us this morning. I'm going to make um, four uh, brief statements about these verses and then we're going to spend uh, most of our time on verse 16 uh, at the end of our time together. Here are the four 
kind of quick points that I want to make about these verses. First and foremost, um, the deity of Christ is essential orthodoxy. I'm going to say that again. The deity of Christ is essential orthodoxy. You walk away from the truth that Jesus is the living God. You walk away from Christianity. Nicene Creed, this was the battle that they were in. Nicene Creed 325, God appeared in a body. If you want a couple of chapters to study around point one, I would encourage you to read and study John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. John 1 and Colossians 1. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Colossians chapter 1, all things have been created by him and for him. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Um, These are really important truths for us to understand and embrace. And what is in view in our passage is the evil activity, the evil activity of the demonic that was persuading people, blinding people to the truth of Jesus and persuading them of error to abandon the faith in the later times, which is point two. Uh, It's important for us to understand that we now, currently, here, right now, in this moment, we are living in the later times. Uh, Another way to understand the later times is the church age. Another way the Bible puts it is the last days. Uh, From Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives uh, before his disciples, between that moment and when the Father sends him to come in his second coming on that white horse with those tattoos, with fire in his eyes, ready to unleash the fury and the wrath of God on the evil of the earth. He gets, I literally have chills in my body right now saying it. In between the ascension of Christ and the coming of Jesus and the second coming, that window of time is the latter days. So as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy and Ephesus, they were in the, they were in the later days or the last days. And we now are in the later days as well. It does not refer to a specific point uh, in time. I'm going to reference Acts chapter 2. Right after the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 2, Peter uses the phrase later days or latter days. We'll say later days. I think that's better. Uh, Peter uses the phrase uh, to interpret the prophecy of Joel. And it says in Acts 2, in the last days. Or in the later days, God says, I will pour out my my spirit on all people. Hallelujah. All people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, proclaim the name of Jesus. And I just want to make sure that you caught that. Sons and daughters are proclaiming and prophesying in the name of Jesus. Jesus in the last days. So there's, there's a lot of examples biblically of uh, last days or later days, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, and they are intended, when you see that phrase in the scripture, uh, those phrases are intended to alert you. They're intended to get your attention at what has already begun to take place in the window between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. 
be alerted to a moral decline in our world. Paul says it this way in our text, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. There's a moral decay. There is a, there is a walking away from um, the goodness, the character, the, 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 the righteousness of the way of the kingdom of God and be alerted to deception away from doctrinal truth or away from orthodoxy. Paul says this in our text, some who have abandoned the faith. So the deity of Christ, essential orthodoxy, we are currently living in the later days. We are living in the last days. And then I wanted to invite you to consider, did you notice the juxtaposition as we read through the passage, as chapter 3 ends and we move into chapter 4, the juxtaposition of the truth statements in the end of chapter 3 and that creedal hymn and the error that Paul is calling Timothy to fight against in chapter 4. So a couple of examples of this juxtaposition of truth and error. Uh, he said at the end of chapter 3, the church and we are the church. Like this is a building, right? But you are the church. You, you, I'm thinking of this right now. I didn't do this. So this is the church. Here are the, oh, and here's, here are the people. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. A lot of you guys learned that. That's so cheesy. But we are the church. Point taken. The church is the people. Amen? It's us. We are the church. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth of God. We carry that anointing and we carry that responsibility. And we are called to contend for that truth. And that is juxtaposed against, beginning of chapter 4, some will abandon the faith and follow demonic spirits. Truth, the end of chapter 3, godliness is great. The mystery of godliness is great. Juxtaposed with hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. I'm thinking about that juxtaposition. End of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. And I think if there's one word that summarizes our passage today in that juxtaposition, the word is this, warfare. Warfare. Whether you are aware of it or not, you are in spiritual warfare every single day. There is an enemy of your soul that prowls around seeking whom he might deceive and devour. To put it simply, to be human, it is to be at war. And we need to be alerted to this reality. This text, I think, gives us a behind-the-scenes look into what's happening in the spiritual realm. And here's what's happening in the spiritual realm. Paul is teaching us the real perpetrators of hypocritical liars are principalities and powers that are behind the deception the real perpetrators are evil spiritual forces that deceive and blind the heretics. In verse 1, chapter 4, he uses the descriptors of spirits and the demonic, uh, evil spirits working through human beings to promote error and to deceive people from the truth. Um, we know the story. If you don't know the story, it's in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Paul was 
Uh, he was an enemy of the new covenant church of Jesus. He, was, uh, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is literally killing Christians, uh, Acts chapter 8, and then Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Jesus uh, powerfully uh, comes into the Apostle Paul's life, uh, saves him, and calls him to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews. In Acts chapter 26, there's this scene that I think, um, for me, feels palpable around spiritual warfare and the battle between truth and error. And the risen Christ tells Paul or reminds him in Acts chapter 26 of his calling to preach the name of Jesus and the gospel to Gentiles. And he says to go to the Gentiles and to, quote, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power, here's a phrase, and from the power of Satan to God. That's the warfare that Paul was called to engage in in his ministry. Uh, there are lots of examples of spiritual warfare, of lies that are promoted by the enemy. Uh, Paul gives us two in our text. I'm just going to mention the two that Paul mentions that was infiltrating in the church um, falsehood that he mentions. Two examples of erroneous, dark lies that was creating fear and deception. Two heretical things. A forbidding of marriage and a, an ordering abstinence from certain foods. Um, one of the commentators I read this week had this to say on these two examples. Uh, mere abstinence is not unusual for a culture, but wholesale denying people the right to marry is uncommon except in cults. So it was this cultish thing that was happening, forbidding. And remember Ephesus, we've learned about, we've learned about Ephesus, Artemis, right? The goddess of fertility. They were coming against the very fabric of what God had created uh, to give people the institution of marriage, and they were forbidding it. And Paul is coming against that heretical teaching. Now, as a side note, let me say this about abstinence and fasting. Uh, this passage should not be used in any way to condemn or judge people for fasting or for a form of abstinence as a way of godliness. Uh, there are personal convictions that we carry about different things that aren't that aren't orthodoxy, okay? And Paul gives a lot of attention and a lot of uh, time on this in Romans chapter 14. And so um, if you want to go read Romans 14 later, uh, do that uh, again. Um, there is freedom for uh, conviction, but to make a wholesale forbidding of marriage and certain foods is cultish. And Paul's coming against the darkness of that lie. I, I think what's important for us to understand here is what Paul always promotes is freedom. Paul is a freedom fighter and he, he does it here as well. Uh, his invitation is to freedom. What God has created, marriage, food, is to be received with thanksgiving. It has been consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Um, what I think is important for us to discern um, in our day is that we should also we should also be aware of teaching, teachers, messaging that is deceitful, that is contrary to truth revealed in the scripture. There is so 
much messaging out there. So much messaging out there. And so I just want to say pastorally, be aware, be aware and be discerning when any person, any teaching puts any stipulation on God's blessing, on his care, on his love, on his forgiveness. Let me say it this way. Jesus plus any condition that you must do to receive God's love, care, blessing, forgiveness is a false message from the pit of hell. I want to say it that clearly. The grace of Jesus is unmerited for you. Jesus plus any condition that you must do is a false message. Now, does grace empower us in the way of godliness? Yes, yes. But a condition to receive it? No, no, no. The mystery, Paul says, of godliness is Jesus, period. Not Jesus plus this or that or the other. The mystery of godliness is great. And it is Jesus. He is the revelation. He is the truth and freedom. Christology, point four, must always, it must always, always, always be the essential foundation for any fellowship that speaks the name of Jesus Christ. So here's verse 16 again. Christology must, be, must always be the essential foundation. And here is the creed that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 3.16. And I just want to walk through this briefly with you again. Let's read it again. He, God, Jesus, appeared in the flesh or in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was proclaimed among the nations, was believed in throughout the world, and was taken up in glory. Hallelujah. And Paul says, this great truth, this great truth is beyond all question. Paul centers Christ as the revelation of the mystery. Hear me say this, the mystery of godliness as a revelation of Jesus. I, I, I spend time with a lot of people, right? I'm a pastor. That's my job. That's what I do. And... Um, all of us have questions about God's will, right, to some degree. What's God's will? And sometimes we, it gets kind of narrow when I'm meeting with someone and talking with them about God's will. And it becomes like this tightrope and we're too afraid to make them say, because, well, what's that? what if that's not God's will? You know, it's like, I don't want to. And I'm just, let me just tell you that God's sovereignty is a real comfortable place to land. Okay? And I believe that God's spirit will speak with you in his word and song through the counsel of people. Proverbs says there is victory in the counsel of many people. And I believe that, that God will speak to you clearly. If there is something that is not what God is leading you to, he will make it known to you that is not where you are to go or that is not where you are to do. But more often than not in my life, I have found that God's sovereignty and God's will is a bit more robust than just this one thing. Are you all with me right now? And let me, just, let, me, let, me, let me just encourage you with this. God's will for you is Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1. Like if, what's, I don't know what God's will for my life is. I'm telling you what God's will for your life. You're, the will of God is for you to know Christ and make him known. Ephesians chapter 2. Ah, oh, I just, I need peace. 
I want, I just need a peace that doesn't, that surpasses understanding. Philippians 4, Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus himself is your peace. He is your peace. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul picks up this language about the mystery of godliness. And he just, he's getting so caught up in telling this church in Ephesus that they are invited, these Gentiles are invited to the table of salvation and they too are adopted into God's family. You don't need to turn here, but listen to what Paul has already written. He has already written this to the church in Ephesus around the mystery of godliness. And if there are Gentiles in the room, and there are because that's who we are, we're non-Jews. This is to us. In reading this then, you will be able to understand, let me get these glasses on because I am almost 50 and I got a lot of gray in my beard these days. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one family. And sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul in this letter to Timothy to write this incredible, Christological, Jesus-centered creed. It is profoundly Christological. Jesus is God in the flesh, now and forevermore exists as one person in two natures, our Savior. Um, I want to look more closely at this creed, and I want you to think about uh, when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And there's a phrase in the Lord's Prayer that says, uh, your kingdom come on earth as it is in Heaven. So he's teaching us to pray heaven to earth, heaven to earth. And we think about Christology, the deity of Christ, heaven to earth. And so what we see in this creed is, is heaven to earth. It's just a flow of, of heaven and earth and heaven and earth and heaven and earth. As we work through this creed, Jesus appeared in a body, heaven to earth. The God of all glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, appeared in a body, in the flesh. The invisible God, Colossians 1.15 has been made known visibly in Jesus. And we have beheld his glory. Again, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us fully man. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus appeared in a body earthly and he was vindicated by the spirit heavenly. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ in his body, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, earthly, but has been made alive in the spirit, heavenly. He was preached among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations, earthly. He was believed on in the world, earthly. Romans 10, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He was seen by the angels, heavenly, taken up in glory, heavenly, Acts 1, 8, and 9. But you, you disciples, to the disciples in Acts 1 on the Mount of Olives, but today you, people of God, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you live, your hometown, your home city, and in all Judea and Samaria, the region that you are in, and all to the ends of the earth. And after Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their Sight And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for the day that the Father says, now it's time. And we are living in the last days, waiting, yearning, hoping, trusting. Everything of our faith in God centers on Christ who came to save us. Everything in our faith Everything out of our faith in God centers on Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ who came to save us. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ evokes a response from you and from me. What do we do with the proclamation of Jesus? What do you do with the proclamation of Jesus? If you have been mistreated, in your life, if you have been misunderstood, betrayed, wounded, harmed, Christ vindicates you. He is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you feel alone, the risen Christ Jesus comes to you today with mercy and compassion, and forgiveness, and adoption into his family of sons and daughters all over the world. If you have doubts, questions, I just would say, me too. And I would say to you, so many others of us in this room, I believe, would say, I still still wrestle with doubt. I still wrestle with questions. Nathaniel, one of the 12 disciples, doubts. He was a skeptic. Jesus met him right where he was. Thomas, after the resurrection, questioning, wondering, wasn't sure. Jesus meets him right where he was. Let me say this. Your doubts does not negate faith in Jesus. If you have done some bad stuff, so have I. And so have all of us in the room. So did Peter, the apostle. So did Paul, the self-proclaimed worst of sinners. And we've been saying this because he said it twice No one, no one is ever too far gone. 
for the grace and the mercy and the love and the power of God to save someone. Because if grace came to save Paul and grace came to save me, it has the power certainly to save you as well. The cross of Jesus, his resurrection is more powerful than how you have been treated, how you have been misunderstood, how you have been betrayed. The power of God is more powerful than how you feel. It is more powerful than your doubts and your questions. And it is more powerful than anything that you have ever done. Oh, the wonderful, oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace draw near. All who gather here at the cross of Jesus, by grace we draw near. By grace we are saved. The unmerited favor of God bids you to come right where you are to receive fresh revelation of Jesus. Um, I want to show a quick uh, video trailer of uh, a cool series called The Chosen. Uh, I want to show you the trailer of season three uh, real quick just to awaken us off of uh, you listening to me and uh, what we've just read to a story, to a story that I think is awakening a lot of people to the person and the salvation of Jesus. So watch this trailer of Chosen season three and then we'll wrap up in just a minute. You look troubled. I am. You're losing something. I know what that's like. What are you losing? Time. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Someone touched me. If you are really the one who is to come, should we look for someone else? Go and tell John what you hear and see. Who is it? Why did we stop? It's him. I'm Judas of Keriot. I have chosen you twelve as my apostles. Don't feel any different? I don't need you to feel anything to do great things. What is stirring in your hearts? In the middle of such division and unrest? Is Father God being revealed to you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A scourge of false prophecy must stop. Jesus, if you do not renounce your words, we will have no choice but to follow the law of Moses. I am the law of Moses. They're here for Jesus of Nazareth. More valuable than gold, more precious than rubies. Force them out. We are still Rome. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
I'm the one who caused their hunger. I should be the one to feed them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hey there, I'm Dallas, creator of The Chosen, and I just wanted to tell you real quick. Benediction, um, that show and the impact of that show. But let me just say this before uh, Meg and Chris and lead us in worship. Uh, I get stirred most like when you watch a video like that or you listen to worship music. Like it, it moves what's in our heads down into our hearts. Um, that's why I wanted to show you that trailer this morning. Um, let me just say this to close. If you, if you do not know Jesus in a personal, saving way. I am preaching to you and I am inviting you to come to the table of God and receive restoration, reconciliation, redemption, hope, salvation, grace on grace on grace. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said it this way, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we proclaim the name of Jesus and the freedom of Jesus. Let's worship together. You are welcome to stay seated and just receive the worship. You're welcome to stand uh, as we sing these songs. I want to let you know, kind of towards the end of the the last song, there'll be some prayer ministers that will come down front, and they'll be available for you to pray with at the end of our service. But let's enjoy worshiping the Lord together as a response.